morning, family. Beautiful day, right? One of those days we could have church outside. It'd be wonderful. I might want to open the windows or something. Well, the mission of the church <clears throat> that Jesus gave very clearly in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he told um, his apostles that you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem to Judea, into Samaria to the ends of the earth. You will be the witnesses of my resurrection and the transformative power of my gospel. You will be the ones to go out into the world to tell people, and those that you tell that receive will become Christ followers, God's children, and part of the body of Jesus Christ. And we're seeing in Acts chapter 15, as we are more than halfway through this book, the church of the mission, uh, the mission of the church, pardon me, hitting its full stride. It's moving with great momentum. The Christian faith at this point has infiltrated all of Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, a great number of Jews in Jerusalem and Judea are now Christians, so much so that the leaders of the Jewish people that weren't Christians were frustrated by it. It was, it was on their radar. Christianity had moved into Samaria, to the big major cities of Samaria. It had converted a major uh, political figure from Ethiopia. Um, it had now moved into converting someone who was part of the Roman government. And the Christian mission ultimately found its greatest asset in converting its biggest enemy, Paul, Saul, I should say, into becoming its most effective missionary. Paul was active right now in converting people all over where he was going. And he became the leader of the movement of the Christian faith, especially in this area. Well, like any great idea or movement or maybe new startup business, so to speak, not long after that thing starts, clarity can sometimes begin to get a little bit muddy, a little bit fuzzy. You start to add more and more people to the team. You start to get more and more voices, more and more values, more and more perspectives. And sometimes that central, clear, explicit mission of that organization can begin to get a little bit hazy. In Acts chapter 15, we see the first time the church has to kind of rally around itself and get together to say, let's pause for a minute, come together, and clarify what we're doing and how we're going to do it. What is exactly really the gospel and what is the mission? And let's make sure that we get this one thing right. This is such an important topic for us to talk about uh, because we are not just 20 or 30 years after the uh, resurrection of Jesus. We're nearly 2,000 years. And we've added not just hundreds or thousands, but millions of voices. So we've got distance of years, we've got a huge contribution of voices that are involved in Christianity that can sometimes muddy the water for us on why we're actually here and what we're actually supposed to be doing. Do you feel confident in your ability to articulate in one sentence or less why we do what we do here? And what we're doing, what's the point or the purpose of the mission of the church? You see, this action of pressing pause, coming together as a body, and making sure our central mission is clarified and understood is vital to the long-term health 
not just of the church in theory or the church at large, which I believe is incredibly important, but um, at our doorstep, what's vitally important. How many of you here want this church in this place, in this building right now to be vibrant, not just for weeks or months, but years to come? So that these young people that are growing up here that might stay in this area and work and raise families doesn't just have a church that knows what to do, but a church that is vibrant and healthy and active. That's why this is important. This is the effort that our elders uh, have been trying to do for the last couple years to make sure that we have honest evaluation of our own hearts and our own minds, along with serious evaluation of our purpose. And we have a strong desire to make sure that the church where we are here has the same mission that Jesus has. We want to have his mission, not our own. So this story alone is valuable and just as a warning to tell us that the church can get off track, that the church can lose its mission, that the church can get sort of muddied down and bogged down in things that are not really what it's supposed to be about. This is important for us to see. But we're also going to learn really important ways to walk through this from this particular text in Acts chapter 15. Uh, We're going to learn three really important things. Number one, the importance of clarifying our mission. Number two, we'll learn the enemies of clarity. And number three, we'll see the impact, the impact that a clear mission can have. So let's do those three things together from our text, and then we'll be on our way today. Number one, the importance. Now, this point is probably um, doesn't need to be stated, but because I think it's important for us to learn, I'm going to state it. Um, Paul at this time, it's impressive to me that Paul and Barnabas were willing to press pause and halt their missionary journey to make sure they get this particular point right. If you notice in verses 1 and 2, it says that there were some men uh, now Paul's up in Antioch, which is north of Samaria. So Jerusalem's down here, north of Samaria. Paul's up there and with Barnabas. And there are some men who came from Jerusalem, from the church, they're Christians, and they went all the way up. It says down because they came down the mountain, but they went all the way up to where Paul was, and they began teaching to these newly formed body of Christians who are Gentiles, this is so great that you're a Christian. We're glad about that. But if you really need but if you're going to be saved, and when they meant saved, they meant if you're really God's people part of God's family, you're going to have to keep the law of Moses. You're going to have to be circumcised and adhere to the law of Moses. And Paul pauses. He is active. He is converting people. He's going from town to town. New Christians are being born every day. An exciting work is happening in the life of Paul and Barnabas. And Paul, in the midst of all that, says, press pause. Wait a minute. We are losing clarity. That alone should tell you how important it is to have missional clarity, what we're doing. That the Apostle Paul and one of probably the most effective missionary trips that the world has ever known is going from city to city and where he goes, he's converting people. He's saying, I'm willing to stop doing that right now because what you guys are saying is messing up the clarity of what the church is about, the mission of the gospel. So we can be about works galore, doing all kinds of things, but if we miss the particular distinctive message that people have to hear, that they are not saved because they do something like circumcision, but they are saved because of the beautiful work of Jesus Christ. If we miss that, we've got to press pause. It's so important that Paul and 
Barnabas would hold their ground vehemently against these guys. I, I love biblical language. You know, it's like, it's, it, it's so soft in tone at times, but it says, look at verse 2. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I don't think that's how it went down. I don't think Paul was saying, listen, I'm going to have a small dissension with you right now. They went after it. Paul is fierce when it comes to the gospel not being confused. He's fierce. So Paul stops his missionary journey. He is willing to debate fiercely with these men. He then is willing to take a long journey back to Jerusalem, carrying this one question, which, amazingly enough, is Paul an apostle, right? Paul had apostolic authority. He probably could have just put his fist down and yelled at them and told them to go home. But he's willing, for the sake of unity, to walk back with Barnabas all the way down to Jerusalem. He makes it to Jerusalem. He's greeted by the church. And again, the problem arises. And then the apostles and the elders gather together in a room and they talk and they talk and they debate and they discuss about the mission of the church to make sure they get it right. All this points to this one fact, that clarity in our mission and clarity in our message is vital. And it's worth it to take our time to make sure we get it right. And so we're committed to that here most certainly amongst uh, Matt and myself with our elders and you all are committed to that because we believe having clarity and mission is important enough for us to pause to make sure we get this right. So number two, so that's number one, clarity is important. Number two, what are the enemies to our clarity? This story actually shows us what I believe to be kind of the hovering around idea of what really stops us from having a clear vision. If you read down in verses 10 and then verse 19, look what um, happens. In verse 10, this is Peter speaking to the apostles and the elders about what they should think about uh, when they're clear, clarifying the mission. In verse 10, he says this, Now therefore, uh, to these Jews who were saying to Gentiles that they ought to be circumcised to become a Christian or to be saved, he says, Therefore, why are you putting God to the test, number one, and number two, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. Placing a yoke on that. So, so that's an uh, illustration that Peter's using to say burdening them. Putting something around their neck that they have to pull as extra weight. What he's saying is to become a Christian, when you say you have to do more and more and more things like circumcision, follow the law of Moses, you're putting a weight on their shoulders that they now have to carry that was not supposed to be there. Look down in verse 19. Uh, this is James who then would speak up. He says, therefore, my judgment, <clears throat> excuse me, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Look what James is saying. Here's his conclusion after this council gets together to talk about this question. Does a person have to be circumcised to be God's child? He stands up, James, and says, listen, here's my conclusion. Here's my judgment about all the things we're talking about. We should not burden, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles. Here's the point. The enemy of clarity in our mission is summed up in these two statements. Placing a yoke, causing trouble, 
enemy to clarity is is when we burden when we add burdens to people to become a Christian or to be accepted into the Christian family when we heap on other additional things for what it takes to become a Christian and to be accepted into the family. That's where this thing begins to go south. That's when we begin to lose our mission because when we begin to value our perspective and our priorities and our things that we want for people to be and to do to become a Christian, when we value those things, we then begin to argue and debate and fight for those things. You see, it was the circumcision party and the pharisaical party that valued circumcision and that valued keeping the law of Moses. And when they valued those things so much equal with becoming a Christian by faith, they begin to argue for those things and the mission lost its clarity. These additions, these burdens, these yokes are born out of things we love and value that we then convert into becoming sacred. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are two places this kind of shows out for them. First of all, for these guys, they had religious values. In verse 2, in verse uh, uh, 4 or 5 as well, when the apostles came, there were men who were saying, you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be a Christian. You see, Jews were the first converts to Christianity. In fact, they could maintain their Jewish practices and still become a Christian. Paul would keep some vows later in his life, as, as, as a Jew would, um, in Acts chapter, I believe it's 22 or 23, he would keep a vow uh, to his Jewish faith. They, would, they could keep the dietary laws. They could keep circumcision. They could do all those things and still be a Christian. And they moved into Christianity. The problem became when they demanded that what they valued in their religion become codified and part of Christianity to those who were not Jews. That's when the problem came in. So a Jewish person could become a Christian and still keep the dietary laws. They could refrain from eating meat that was, th that was unclean or things that they shouldn't eat. They could keep some festivals. They, they could do all of that if they wanted to. But the moment they begin to codify that into law as to be a Christian, you've got to do what I do religiously. You've got to do that. Because everything I do religiously is what makes me right with God. So you, everyone here, have to do exactly what I do religiously. And that's the law to be a Christian, to be accepted into God's family. The clarity begins to be lost. And we begin to argue for things we value instead of the central mission of the church. Number two, so it's not just religious values, but it's also cultural values. Cultural values. Look down in verse 5. When Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem, it says that some of the believers, now Luke is going to tell you who these believers are. Some of these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them. Now that's what they said in verse 2. The Jews that came from Jerusalem up to Antioch where Paul was, that, that's what they were saying. You've got to be circumcised to so these to these non-Jewish Gentile Christians, they were saying, you got to be circumcised. That's all they were saying. And Paul was arguing against that. But now you come down to look in verse 5. They don't just say it's necessary to circumcise, but they also say, and to order these people to keep the law of Moses. Now, when the Pharisees, this, now these were interesting, right? Pharisees who are now Christians, party of the Pharisees, now Christians. 
When they said to keep the law of Moses, they didn't just mean the Ten Commandments and circumcision. They were including all of the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, all those regulations. Because this was not just their religion, it was their culture. Think about how difficult it would be for a Gentile Christian and a Jewish Christian to have dinner together in the first century to sit around the same table and have what the Bible calls fellowship. If a Jew would have come to the table holding on to the cultural things, the ceremonial laws about blood and different kinds of animals, hooved animals and things like that, how difficult would it be for a person who has never experienced that culturally? You know, they're out in the world, they're living in Antioch, life is fine, they're not Jews, and they become Christians, they believe in Jesus Christ, and they're trying to have dinner with a Jew who has all these dietary restrictions in their culture. Imagine how difficult that would be for those two to come around a table. Okay? So the laws for these Jews were more than faith. What the ceremonial laws were and the dietary laws were for the Jew in the Old Testament, it was what separated them from other nations. God drew them out, starting from the seed of Abraham, to say, you are my people, and out of you I will bring a Savior for all the earth, but you are my people, and I will reveal myself, and I will reveal my will to you, and you have my word. And so the dietary laws, all of the celebrations, the Ten Commandments, all of those things to the Jew were culturally relevant because it told them, we are God's people because we do these things. Remember what Peter said when the sheet was lowered down with all the unclean animals? Remember that? He said, Far be it, Lord, I'll never kill one of these animals to eat because unclean food has never touched my mouth. I would never do this. It was important to him. You see, Jews were then beginning to demand that all Gentile converts abide by their cultural expectations. They wanted them to eat the kind of foods that they ate, avoid the foods that they avoided, do the, drink the drinks they drink and avoid the ones they avoided, keep the ceremonial laws like the certain Sabbaths, the new moons, all the different festivals. They were wanting to bring Gentiles who didn't have that culture into their culture and say, to be a Christian, you've got to do all these cultural things that we do. And the moment you value your culture, as much as you value the mission of Christ, you will argue for your culture as much as you argue for the gospel. gospel. Everybody with me? Do you see how what we value, when we make it sacred, it's okay to value things, but when we make it sacred and codify it, we begin to fight and argue for those things and not the mission of the gospel. How does that work for us? Let me try to be brief and explain this. Let's start with our cultural values. Number one, we all have culture in us. It's not always divided by racial uh, lines It's not always divided by pigmentation, the color of your skin, but we all have different cultures based upon where we grew up, what we were exposed to, what we learned to value, what we learned to not value. We all have that in our life. And what's important for us is that we are aware of what we value culturally. And most of these things are usually really good. But what we have to do is to be careful that we don't take what our culture is and say, the way our culture lives is how to be righteous. Let me give you one example. Um, have you ever done a wedding with um, it, like, like a biracial family? One person's from one race and another person from another race. 
Um, it's really interesting. I've been to one, okay, where uh, one, of the, one of the persons getting married was from a predominantly, was a white family, and all their family was white, and the person they were marrying was from a Latino family. Now, what's interesting is the wedding was supposed to start at 2 p.m., okay? And at 1.58, guess who all was there? All the what? Come on. All the white people, right? Because part of our cultural value uh, it, for these people was you show up on time. And because this is a function that we, and for, for people that, that's my culture, it's a sign of respect. These people have asked us to be there. This is their day. And so at 158, we're going to be in our seat. I, I think the Thomas are a different culture, but anyway. <laughs> anyway. But, but for most of us, right? Like, like I mean, I mean, Eric rings the bell, right? At nine o'clock because that's part of our culture. What time do you think the Latino family showed up for the wedding to start? Like 2.48. And what they're saying is, like, if you talk to them and, get, and understand their culture, right, Jose? Am I getting, am I close? Right? Yeah. Okay, you talk to them. This is what I love about Jose. Like, you know, church is over. He's just downshifting, like, we're here for the next hour with you people. We're not leaving, you know? Like, they just, I love it. It's different culture, right? Now, here's what's interesting. If one group says... The way I do it is righteousness. And they look down on the other culture as disdainful towards that righteousness. And we codify that and make that sacred. We then begin to lose the mission of the church. Everybody with me? Does that make sense? That example makes sense? Okay. We have to value the different cultures we have here. We've got beautiful cultures here. And I'd love to see even more of it come to life. We've got wonderful culture here. We've got to learn to honor and value. We do a great job of that, but I wanted to make sure we understood that. Cultural differences make us uncomfortable. They're supposed to because you grew up with one that you value, and so differences make us uncomfortable. That doesn't mean that we have to force people to follow ours or make people feel bad for the ones that they have. Okay, secondly, so cultural values can do that. Religious values. In a person's pursuit of becoming like Jesus Christ in Christianity, he or she will most likely develop practices and things that they find important that help them grow in their faith. Um, getting involved in church activities. Like if you were just to come here as a fly on the wall and observe what does it mean to be a fully immersed member in this church, you would start to list all kinds of things. Like when somebody moves, you got to do Crew for Christ. And in the summer, you got to go to VBS. And where do our kids go in the summer? They go to church camp. And we got a team retreat coming up. And there's a Devo. There's all kinds of things, right, to be a fully immersed member. And you as an individual pursuing Christ-likeness might partake in as many of those as you can to try to grow into becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, the goal of all of those things is to help people become like Jesus. And you might have even developed some of your own personal habits. Uh, maybe some of you have quiet time in the morning where you, you know, get a cute leather-bound journal and a cup of coffee that has an inspirational quote. And you read your Bible and then your kid wakes up and it's over. I'm just kidding. That's how it works for me. Uh, um, Maybe you got a rhythm to how you do things. Okay, that's great. Maybe you have practices that you find helpful. Maybe you've made commitments in your faith that bring out the best in you. And maybe there are ways that you've always done things in church that make you comfortable. But if we codify those things and make them sacred, I'm not talking about commands of Scripture. I'm saying the way we do things, you know, because... 
the way we do things, like I joked this morning in class, like Jesus didn't use PowerPoint, you know? Like, if we codify those things and make them sacred, we will argue for them more than we'll argue for Jesus. Everybody with me? Okay, good. What's the impact of having a clear mission? Let's do that and we'll be done. The impact. Look, at, look down in verses 8 through 11. Listen to Peter. I'm sorry, 7 through 11. Listen to Peter wake us up to reality here. So the apostles and the elders get together and they're debating, they're arguing, they're debating, they're arguing. And here's Paul probably sitting in the corner like, listen, I've just converted like, me and Barnabas have converted like a thousand Gentiles. Peter's over here saying like, God sent me to the Gentiles. I've converted them. The Holy Spirit fell on them, proving that they're just like us. Like, they're probably waiting and waiting and waiting. And listen to all these like Jewish people who have never left Jerusalem, just arguing and arguing about what the answer to this question is. And listen to what Peter says in verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now what's Peter implying about how their hearts were cleansed, the Jews? By faith. It is not by your circumcision. Verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test and placing a yoke on the neck of these disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's saying, listen, we, we follow this law, but we haven't been able to live up to the expectation of the law. We fail it. So why in the world would we take this thing that we're failing at and place it on their neck as well. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Boy. And then he turns the floor over to, floor over to Paul, and Paul tells of countless stories of conversion. I can just feel the energy in that room. You know when things are kind of confusing? And somebody says something and like the penny drops and the kind of air goes out of the room and everybody just, they get it. So Peter stands up after all this debate and he says these things about hearts cleansed by faith, about preaching the gospel, hearts cleansed by faith, and about grace. And the air goes out of the room and everybody remembers, guys, that's why. We couldn't do it either. Wake up. It's grace. And then he turns over to Paul. Paul and, Paul and Barnabas begin to tell about different people that they saved, that they were saved by grace. Three impacts really quickly. Number one, <clears throat> when our mission is clear, go make disciples. Go seek and save the lost. When our mission is clear, we get a clear message. When our mission is messy, when our mission is kind of confusing, like, like what do we value the most when there's a million things? And our message gets messy because we have to talk about a thousand different things. But when our mission becomes clear that there are lost people within five miles of this building right now, and that's our mission, our message becomes clear. He said in verse 7, God sent me with the message that people should hear the gospel and believe it. 
imploring people, pleading with people, teaching people, showing people. Here is the gospel. What you've always wanted, what you've always needed, the thing you're restless about, the thing that you can't find settled, the thing that you can't ever solve, the thing that you're frustrated about, is solved, answered, and satisfied in Jesus Christ. Let me show you how. He loved you more than you've ever loved yourself. In your worst spot, he said, I'll still come for you. I'll take on flesh. And I'll live perfection. The perfection that you want but you can't achieve, I'll live it. And I'll still die for you so that you can have the gift of that perfection. And I'll take from you the things that have ruined your life. And in that grave, those things buried and they were gone. And he resurrected to a new life to tell us that our God takes dead things and makes them alive again. And there will be a day that this world will be made brand new. And God no longer will have a barrier between us and him. And he will dwell with us. And we will dwell with him. And we will be made new. That's the promise of Christianity. And that's what we preach. And if you believe that message, if you understand that message and believe it, we'll walk you into what it looks like to live with him. Starting by having faith, being willing to own and confess your sin, being willing to own and confess that you believe in him, repenting, which means in action, doing things differently because of the gospel, and coming down into the waters to become one with this person who saved your life, Jesus Christ. That's the message we preach. That's all we want people to have access to. So you get a clear message when you have uh, a clear mission. You get a single objective. Verse 9, he says that our hearts are clean, their hearts were cleansed by faith. That's the ultimate outcome. So we take people and they become Christians by the gospel. We want over the course of their life for their hearts to continually go through the process of being cleansed. So our single mission here is to make disciples. That means when people aren't Christians, we want them to become Christians. When they become Christians, we want them to look like Jesus Christ. And that's a lifelong endeavor, and that's what it means to make disciples. So when you become a Christian, you're here. The thing that's on our minds when we teach, when we preach, when they shepherd as elders, is how can I help you become like Jesus Christ? What are the wounds in your heart? What are the evil that you're still holding on to? What are the false beliefs that you still carry with you? What is the weight of sin that you just won't let go of? We want to cleanse that heart by faith. And we're participating in that together with you. So we get a clear message. We get a single objective. And finally, in verse 10, we get a stable foundation. Verse 10, Peter said this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the back of these disciples? Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. You see, the moment we take, whether it's our religious values, our cultural values, anything else that we codify to make what the church is about, ourselves on a foundation that can crumble. Because the moment, let's just take our our, um, social values, cultural values, and say being punctual is what makes you righteous. What do you do the moment you're late? You tremble, right? You speed, and you get nervous, and you get anxious, and you're worried, right? Because your foundation is that. But when your foundation is Jesus Christ, you have the most stable foundation in the world. Look what he says. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question about Jesus' grace. Does it fail? And when you... Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. 
he is the only Lord in your life that if you get him, will fulfill you. But if you fail him, he'll forgive you. Every other Lord you have in your life, whether it's your cultural values, your work life, your career, your spouse, whatever God you have that's not Jesus Christ, if you get it, you'll find out it really wasn't everything you wanted. And if you fail it, it will be brutal to you the rest of your life. Jesus Christ, if you get him, he'll satisfy you. If you fail him, he'll forgive you. Show me a better foundation to stand on the rest of your life. Okay, how do you obey? Number one, pray. Prayerfully consider if you value clarity in the mission here at Pickerington Church of Christ. You remember here? Pray about it. Do you value that? And ask yourself if you do. Number two, examine to see if you are living, if you are giving life. I'm pardon me. Examine your heart to see if you're giving life to clarity of mission enemies. Are there things you value more than the mission being clear? Number three, actively build the foundation of grace in your life every day. And if you do that, you will partake in a larger body of people that value those things and value grace and work together for that. And if grace is not something that you've had, if that gospel presentation is something that you have not maybe ever really fully connected with and you want to think more about it, would you do us the great honor of letting one of us know? We can do it now as we sing. We can do it after. Let somebody know that you want to learn more about grace and we'll help you. Let's stand and sing.